0: Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Last week in our Colossians series, Continuing in Christ, we looked at the first summons to God's people. Today, we look at the second summons to God's people, this time from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 17. Our speaker today, Murray Note.
1: giving thanks to God the Father through him.
0: Well, good evening. As we get started tonight, uh, let me pray. Lord, you've done so much for us, and you ask so little in return. I pray that this evening you will speak through me as we consider how to cast off our earthly ways and live a life that imitates your Son, Jesus. Let us be a people who are thankful for the grace you have shown us and who give all glory to you. Amen. Well, two years ago, I watched a documentary on the amount of water needed to produce one kilo of food. You see, I'd been prompted by a friend to consider my impact on the world, and with a somewhat sceptical mindset, decided to have a look at their viewpoint. The results blew me away. The difference between a kilo of beef and a kilo of tomatoes was staggering. Did you know it takes over 15,000 litres of water to produce one kilo of beef? 15,000 litres. For lamb, it's 10,000. For pork, it's 7,000. For chicken, it's 3,000. Tomatoes, 214. To put that in perspective, you could either have one kilo of beef or 71 kilos of tomatoes. I was a bit shook. You see, I resolved that day, the only meat I would eat moving forward would be chicken. And I'd only do it on the weekends. The rest of the time, it would be healthy greens and grains and nothing else. And for a while, I did stick at it. But over time, my resolve and my drive started to fade. At first, it was the Friday nights that I suddenly counted as the weekend. And then before you knew it, if I cooked on a Sunday, it was okay to eat the leftovers all throughout the week. Pork became okay because it's better than beef. And all of a sudden, I was ordering a barbecue meat lovers from Johnny's down the road. You see, the issue hadn't changed. Beef is and was still terrible for the environment. But I lost my drive and returned to my old way of eating. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you have had a similar experience. Maybe it wasn't food. Perhaps you went to the dentist and got scared into flossing. Or you had a bit of a hell scare at the doctor and so decided to take up jogging. I don't know what it was, but I think we can all relate to starting something with good intention and then slowly slipping our ways back to the way we used to do things. And I share these examples with you tonight because I think they are great images of what we're getting from Paul in Colossians. We get an image of a people who have received a life-changing piece of information. They've resolved to live one way, and then they find themselves pulled back to the way they used to live. So, as we begin, let's look at verse 1 to 4. Because Paul is really helpful in setting up this whole passage as an introduction, starting at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Tonight we're going to walk through three different ideas. We're going to look at what what we are putting to death, and that's the earthly things that Paul mentions. We're going to look at what we're putting on, that's the things above, and we're going to look at how we can practically do these things. I do hope we walk away tonight with a deeper desire to pursue the life that we've been called to, and in a way that's unlike my decision to avoid beef, we stick at it. It doesn't fade or disappear as we joyfully get to acknowledge the grace that we've been given. So, what are we putting to death? Well, as we just read in verse 1-4, to our minds are to be set on things above, not on the earthly things. As verse 3 states, we have died, and therefore the earthly things of our old life should be cast off. But what does Paul mean by earthly things? What are the things that we need to cast off? Let's turn to verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whether that's sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Friends, Paul is adamant that there are things in our lives that need to be put to death. By put to death, he's calling for them to be mortified, to be deadened, to be subdued, to be eradicated. The language is incredibly strong. There is no room for these things in our lives. It's important to acknowledge that this is not an exhaustive list. As you look at the two lists in verse 5 and verse 8, you might be tempted to start crossing off the things that don't apply to you. I don't show evil desires. I'm not sexually immoral. I don't have filthy language. It's a natural human reaction. We don't want to be in the wrong. But can I implore you to pause that instinct? Because this isn't an exhaustive list, this isn't the checklist of what not to do, Paul's just giving us an indicative list of the issues that the Christians in Colossae are facing. But it extends to all earthly things. 1 John 2.16 talks of these earthly things in a bit of a broader stroke. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Everything in the world comes not from the Father. See, friends, if God is not in something, we should not be doing it. And if we'd like to argue that this message is just intended for the Christians in Colossae, then verse 11 will pull us back to reality very quickly. That this way of living isn't just for the Jew or the Gentile, the circumcised or the uncircumcised, the barbarian or the Scythian, the slave or the free, but is for all, because Christ is in all who choose him. This passage is for all of us and all of our sins. We can't claim an exemption or seek to justify our actions. We must put to death anything and everything that is not from the Father, Else, we're continuing to act as though we're still in the world without the redemption and grace that Christ has brought. Verse 1 of this passage talks about setting our hearts on things above. And this ties right into verse 8, that we should rid ourselves of things like anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from our lips. Paul focuses on what is coming out of our lips because he's intimately aware that whatever comes out of our lips is a reflection of our heart. As we see in Luke 6, a good man brings good things out of the good thought up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil thought up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. As we step away from the ways of the world, our language and our talk should reflect our hearts. As we turn towards Christ, our language should be without slander and gossip and malice, not seeking to spew forth anger or hurt. Paul is very clear. Our hearts and our minds must be cleansed of the things of the world. But we can't merely remove the things of the world. As important as it is to take off our earthly natures, we also need to fill our hearts and our minds with Christ-like qualities. This verse 9 says, we've taken off our old self, so we need to put on our new self. So what does our new self look like? What are we putting on? Well, Paul, once again, the great man that he is, has laid it out pretty perfectly for us, so we'll turn to verse 12 to find out. Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's a pretty clear instruction. We have been chosen. We are God's people. And we should act accordingly. As we take off our earthly desires, we should be filled with the desire to follow Christ's example, to put on virtues, virtues that fulfill our calling as God's people. We're told that we are holy and dearly loved. We are loved by an almighty God who is giving us clear instructions on how to follow him. Why on earth would we not do it? So, in response, we have to clothe ourselves with virtues that in today's society may be mocked as foolish or futile, but that embody the life that our Saviour lived. We're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And notice there's no caveats, there's no buts. It's not put on compassion until it starts to hurt. It's not put on kindness until we're taken advantage of. It's not put on humility until we achieve something special. It's not be gentle and patient, but only the first time we're wrong. We are to do these things regardless of the response we receive, regardless of how others react, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes us. And we are to do it in love. Paul is really big on love. It's an integral part of this passage, and it's the glue that kind of holds together the rest of the virtues. And Paul is so big on it because he's seen the power that love can have. He's seen what Christ can do and the grace that Christ brings. On the cross... As a human, he died for us, both forgiving us for our failures and loving us despite our sinfulness. Consider how we as humanity were living in selfish sexual immorality, in lust, in evil desires, with anger and malice and slander, and yet we were forgiven first. So now we get to follow that example and live like him and love like him. Our lives need to reflect this incredible change. I work for an organisation called Open Doors that partners with persecuted Christians all over the world, and every week I get the privilege of hearing incredible stories of Christians choosing to follow Jesus, choosing to emulate Christ, even at a great cost. In Central Asia, there lives a man who I'll call George. George was a criminal. He was convicted and imprisoned for violent and aggressive crimes. He was a broken and sinful man, but in prison, he came to know Jesus. Upon his release, George took it upon himself to live for Christ, even though doing so in his country could bring a longer and harsher penalty than he had received for his brutal crimes. But despite this reality, George put on peace. He put on compassion. He put on gentleness. He sought to show Christ's grace to others. He now leads an underground church, and during COVID last year, he provided aid to his whole community, including those who persecuted him. Friends, this is what true transformation looks like. And the reality is we probably don't have a story like George. And for some of us it may feel like we've been Christians our whole lives that we never had a before to look back on. But that doesn't mean we get to discard this passage. I accepted Jesus when I was a child. don't have many memories of beforehand. Uh, I think I remember a pink swing set and maybe a small cricket bat. Uh, it's a bit foggy to be honest. But that doesn't mean I don't still have work to do. There are still plenty of moments when I return to my earthly ways. When I'm short with my family or I cling too tightly to my money. I still have moments when I reflect my earthly ways instead of Christ's way. I think it's so important to acknowledge that we aren't complete. No matter what we do, we'll still fall short of the example of Christ. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. When we turn towards him, we acknowledge our flaws and we are actively saying, I want to walk in the life that you've set before me. And when people look at me, I want them to see you. Verse 3 tells us that we are hidden in Christ, and as long as we cling to that truth and pursue virtues in him, we will continue to move forward in the life he's placed before us. Nothing can pull us away from him. And that brings us to my final point tonight. How do we practically put to death the ways of the earth and focus on? on the things above. Well, quite simply, it's done by acknowledging what Christ has done and the grace he shows us and being thankful. Verse 15 calls us to be a people of peace. As members of a global church, we are called as one to join in peace. This doesn't mean we live without opinion or disagreement. You could probably preach a whole sermon on that. But it means that we seek to stand as one people united in Christ, even when it's hard. And we do it with thankfulness. From verse 16, we are to let the message of Christ dwell among us richly through psalms and hymns and songs as we admonish and teach one another and we are to do it with gratitude in our hearts towards God. And from verse 17, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are to do it with thankfulness to God. Do you notice the trend? As we cast off things of this world and seek to follow Christ's example, we should be in constant thankfulness. This is not a new idea. In fact, we've seen this in chapter 1, verse 3, in chapter 2, verse 7, and now here in chapter 3. Thankfulness is such an integral part of setting our minds on the things above. For we are isolated, living alone in our earthly ways. And yet God has pulled us from that life and into his holy people to live as part of his family. Colossians 1, 21-22 is an incredible reminder of this truth. It says, "Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior, but He has now reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation." Friends, this is an incredible image of grace. Our actions were the cause of our separation from Christ, but through His grace, His decision to die on a cross for our sins, we are being transformed. And we can be presented without blemish and free from accusation through His grace alone. If we aren't living in thankfulness of this grace, I think it's important for us to stop and consider why. Because we will never get a gift greater than this gift of grace. There was a priest called Gleb Yakunin who in the 1980s was thrown into a labour camp in Russia called Perm-27, a remnant of the concentration camps used in World War II. His crime was choosing to follow Jesus. It was a horrific place with survival rates that lasted less than two years. Gleb Yukunin was in the camp for six. Each morning he would wake up and take hold of his beaded necklace, a bit like the one you see on the screen, And he'd begin his day by setting his mind on the things above. The necklace had 33 beads. And so to start, he'd count the first 11 beads. And as he did, he'd give 11 reasons why he was thankful to be alive in the world. Once that was done, he'd start with the next 11 beads. And he'd give 11 reasons why he was thankful that Jesus had shown him grace and saved him. Then he'd get to his final 11 beads. And he'd explain 11 challenges that he expected to face throughout the day and then he'd give them to God. Some days this process would take hours, because those first 11, finding reasons why life was still worth living, were so hard. But each day he committed to finding 11 reasons to be thankful. Friends, if Gleb Yakunin can be thankful for the life he lived and the grace that Christ has brought him, while living in the middle of an oppressive labour camp, how much more can we be thankful for our life each day? How much more can we be praising Jesus for what he's done? As we come to a place of thankfulness, and as we are thankful for all things, we are fixing our mind on the things above. It's hard to be filled with rage when we are appreciating what Christ has done. It's hard to be filled with greed when we're thankful for what we've been given. It's hard to be fixating on the things of this world if we are choosing to acknowledge Christ's role in our lives and looking upwards towards him. Paul tells us in this passage to do everything in the name of Jesus. Everything in the name of Jesus. How often do you go shopping in the name of Jesus? How often do you go to work or uni in the name of Jesus? How often do you garden in the name of Jesus? When we claim to do something in the name of Jesus, we're both claiming to do it for him, we're also claiming that it's something he would do, that we're emulating him. We're saying that in all the good we do, it's for Christ. And every time we choose to turn away from the ways of the world, it's for Christ. In all we do, it must be for Christ. As I seek to be compassionate, I'm doing so as a representative of Christ, doing what I believe He would do. As I choose to turn away from idolatry, I'm doing so for the sake of Christ. As I forgive those who wrong me, I do so for the sake of Christ. In all I do, I do so for the sake of Christ. If we don't feel comfortable doing something in Christ's name, we need to ask ourselves why. What about it is not for Christ? Could it be perhaps that the action or the thought or the desire is focused on the things of the world instead of on the things above? If so, we should heed Ron's words from last week. If something is not in Christ, we should boldly proclaim, it is dead to me. It is dead to me. Friends, it's such a privilege to be part of Christ's holy family. We were lost without hope. We were living in idolatry and selfish sin, in anger and in ignorance. We were eating beef without knowing the true water cost. But Christ has paid the great sacrifice on the cross. He's shown us that we can lift our eyes to the things above and we can live in a way that glorifies Him as part of His family. When He had every right to do so, He could have cast us aside. He instead chose to love us, extending His incredible grace towards us. So let us consider things of this earth dead to us and, in Christ's name, let us focus on the things above With thankfulness. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6 pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.